0: Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Greatness and Glory, The Jesus Way, and is based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, October 22, 2006. In a column that rings more true today than when he first wrote it, The humorist Dave Barry recalls his summer internship in Washington's Corridors of Power 40 years ago, and the distorted values that characterized so much of what he experienced as a teenager. Listen to Dave Barry. When I got to Washington, I discovered that even among young people, being a good guy was not the key thing. The key thing was your position on the great Washington totem pole of status. Way up at the top of this poll is the president. Way down at the bottom, below mildew, is the public. In between is an extremely complex hierarchy of government officials, journalists, lobbyists, lawyers, and other power players, holding thousands of minutely graduated status rankings differentiated by extremely subtle nuances that only Washingtonians are capable of grasping. For example, Washingtonians know whether a person whose title is Principal Assistant Deputy Undersecretary is more or less important than a person whose title is Associate Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary, or Principal Deputy to Deputy Assistant Secretary, or Deputy to the Deputy Secretary, or Principal Assistant Deputy Undersecretary, or Chief of Staff to the Assistant Assistant Secretary. All of these, by the way, are real federal job titles. Everybody in Washington always seems to know exactly how much status everybody else has. I don't know how they do it. Maybe they all get together in some secret location and sniff one another's rear ends. All I know is, back in my internship summer of 1967, when I went to Washington parties, they were nothing like parties I'd become used to in college. I was used to parties where it was not unusual to cap off the evening by drinking bourbon from a shoe, and not necessarily your own shoe. But in Washington, parties were serious. Everybody made an obvious effort to figure out where everybody else fit on the totem pole, and then spent the rest of the evening sucking up to whoever was higher up. I hated it. Of course, one reason for this was that nobody ever sucked up to me since interns rank almost as low as members of the public. Dave Barry. The Gospel reading this week suggests that James and John and the ten disciples who exploded in anger at them would have fit quite nicely into the Washingtonian world that stratifies people into a hierarchy based upon their perceived power, worth, or status and then pursues a zero-sum game of unbridled self-interest. Of course, Jesus' rebuke of the disciples warns us of our tendency to do the exact same thing. In the book of Mark, three different times Jesus warns his twelve disciples about his destiny at the hands of political powers and raucous mobs in Jerusalem. Betrayal, mockery, condemnation suffering, violent execution, but then resurrection. Despite knowing what awaited him in Jerusalem, Mark pictures Jesus as resolutely determined. We read in Mark 9.32, They were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. They were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. After each of these three predictions, the disciples responded to Jesus with objections, disbelief, fear, ignorance, and, incredibly, with requests for their own greatness and glory. After walking with Jesus for three years, they demonstrated how badly they misunderstood the true nature of his redemptive mission. After his first passion prediction, Jesus rebuked Peter, for trying to prevent his sufferings. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of man, Mark 8.33. After his second prediction, the disciples argued about who was the greatest, Mark 9.34. And after the third prediction, the gospel for this week, in a power grab of remarkable audacity, presumption, and exaggerated self-importance. James and John asked Jesus to do for us whatever we ask. Let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. Mark ten thirty seven. The other ten disciples then implicated their own selves by indignantly protesting, fearing that the two sons of Zebedee might gain some advantage over them. Matthew's account of this story includes a telling detail That it was the mother of James and John who made this brazen request. Matthew 20, verses 20 to 28. In response, Jesus drew an ironic comparison. Their request for greatness, glory, and power, he said, mimicked the petty Roman overlords who oppressed the Jews with taxes, who exploited them, and who would execute Jesus in a very few days. You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, said Jesus, and their high officials exercise authority over them, but not so with you. These political power mongers whom the disciples imitated were the same people they no doubt despised and resented. As he so often did, Jesus reversed and subverted this pattern of human behavior, not the domineering spirit of political power, not schemes to control and subjugate people for your own advantage, not the narcissistic grasp for glory, Jesus said, but the sacrificial will to serve characterizes human greatness. Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Mark 10.45 A ransom liberates someone at the payment of a price. In secular antiquity, for example, a prisoner of war or a slave could be redeemed by paying a ransom price. In the Hebrew Old Testament, the kopher is a sum of money paid for release and reconciliation as in Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. As a constellation of interpretations emerged to understand just who Jesus was and what he did, central to them all was this idea of ransom, the conviction of early believers that Jesus was not a hapless victim, not a failed sage who overplayed his hand, and not a rabble-rouser crushed by Rome but instead one who offered himself to God to redeem humanity. The Old Testament reading for this week provided early Christians, most all of whom were Jews, with the classical text for confessing Jesus as a ransom for many. Listen to Isaiah 53, verses 4 to 12. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living, for the transgression of my people he was stricken. and made intercession for the transgressors. Luther called this a quote-unquote marvelous exchange. Long before him, the epistle of Diognetus from about the year 130 described it as a sweet exchange whereby God, quote, in pity for us, took upon himself our sins and himself parted with his own son as a ransom for us. Many wise people have observed how it's the insecure, fragile self that seeks to control, dominate, exploit, and manipulate others for its own advantage. Human experience tells us that such futile efforts are doomed to fail and that they will often destroy others in the process. In the upside-down world of Jesus, though, only the strongest sense of self A self that neither grovels nor grasps can resist chasing counterfeit notions of greatness. In imitating Jesus, as far as that's humanly possible, we serve others for their good rather than for our own glory. And now for further reflection. Consider the so-called peace prayer Ascribed to St. Francis of Assisi, Lord, make me an instrument of your peace, where there is hatred, let me sow love, where there is error, truth, where there is injury, pardon, where there is doubt, faith, where there is despair, hope, where there is darkness, light, and where there is sadness, joy. O Divine Master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive. It is in pardoning that we are pardoned. It is in self-forgetting that we find. And it is in dying to ourselves that we are born to eternal life. Amen. For books this week I review Brother to a Dragonfly by Will D. Campbell with a foreword by Jimmy Carter. This book was published by Continuum Press in New York first in 1977 and later a 25th anniversary edition. But My copy comes from the year 2006. 268 pages. If you were raised in the South as I was, if you have an interest in the civil rights movement, or want to enjoy one of the most irreverent Christian curmudgeons ever to irritate the church, then read Will Campbell. Campbell was born and raised in the rural and very deep South of Mississippi, ordained by family members at a local Baptist church when he was 17, and a delightfully improbable life, he played a central role as an activist and agitator on behalf of African Americans. But to leave it at that would badly misrepresent him. After the World War II, Campbell studied at Tulane, Wake Forest, and Yale. He served as director of religious life at the University of Mississippi, but left after two years because his controversial views attracted death threats. Then he then did a stint for the National Council of Churches, where he worked with most of the civil rights luminaries. in 1957, for example, Campbell was, Campbell was one of four people who escorted the nine black students who integrated Little Rock Central High School, and he was the only white person to attend the founding of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference by the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. So, how did he come to sip whiskey with the KKK? and get hate mail from the left. Campbell came to distrust all movements and institutions, especially the church. He once referred to television preachers as liars, frauds, and electronic soul molesters. He dismissed all politics as impotent. It was less than Christian, he realized, to agitate for the oppressed but to hate the oppressor. No, one could not preach what Luther called a fictitious grace. God loves the redneck clansmen as well as the disinherited blacks. For the most part, Brother to a Dragonfly tells the story of Campbell's deep love for his brother Joe, and how the latter's tragic demise to alcohol, drugs, and domestic violence led to his premature death. But it was through Joe and an overtly pagan family friend that Campbell had a conversion later in his life. Without realizing it, he recalls, his twenty years of ministry had become one of what he called quote unquote, liberal sophistication. End quote. There was all the difference in the world, he came to realize, between being a doctrinaire social activist, however laudable, and a follower of Jesus. The key. I came to understand the nature of tragedy, he writes, and one who understands the nature of tragedy can never take sides. Christian renegade, preacher, author of 20 books and plays, farmer, country musician, friend of Thomas Merton, Wayland Jennings and Chris Christopherson, and certainly an agent provocateur, Will Campbell loves a good chew of tobacco, and will strike many as enigmatic. Not everyone will appreciate his rapier wit. But PBS profiled him in their documentary entitled God's Will. In 2000, President Clinton honored him with a National Endowment for the Humanities Medal. And the book under review, Brother to a Dragonfly, has won numerous literary awards. Will Campbell brother to a dragonfly. For film this week, I reviewed Tsatsi from the year 2005, a South African film, in Zulu, Hoza, and Afrikaans with English subtitles. The Soweto gang leader Tsatsi, which means literally thug, appears to be a hoodlum without a conscience. The film begins with his gang's murder of a subway rider, a brutal beating of his colleague in crime who dared to raise issues of morality, and then a carjacking. Sotse crashes the new car and finds a newborn baby in the back seat. This film won an Oscar for Best Foreign Film, but just at this early point in the film, I believe that the plot becomes entirely predictable. We know that the little baby will humanize Satsi. He does. And that the little baby will be returned safely to his parents. He is. So, the film really hinges on Satsi's character development and road to redemption. I also thought the film ended somewhat ambiguously, as perhaps it had to, with Satsi's arrest. Director Gavin Hood clearly intends not only to tell a personal story, but also to comment on the horrendous socio-economic inequalities in the post-apartheid South African townships that contributed to Sotsi's life as a criminal. Sotsi, from the year 2005, a wonderful South African film. Finally for this week, we've posted a prayer by the Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard. Kierkegaard lived from 1813 to 1855. O Lord, calm the waves of this heart. Calm its tempests. Calm yourself, O my soul, so that the divine can act in you. Calm yourself, O my soul, so that God is able to repose in you, so that his peace may cover you. Yes, Father in heaven, often we have found that the world cannot give us peace. Oh, but make us feel that you are able to give us peace. Let us know the truth of your promise, that the whole world may not be able to take away your peace. Thank you for joining JourneyWithJesus.net for Sunday, October 22nd, 2006. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.